0: This is, this is exciting. For me, this is the biggest event that we've ever had for consciousness hacking. We have about 500 people here tonight. Um, so thank you all for your interest, your excitement, and being part of this community. Um, for those of you that are new, I um, want to give you a sense of what consciousness hacking is really quick. Um, first, it's, it's a global community. Um, we just onboarded our newest chapter yesterday, Austin, Texas. We have about 30 chapters around the world, and they sort of keep coming. Um, It's grassroots. It's organic. We've never set out to say we want to have chapters around the world. People are just interested in this topic, in this space. And um, the space that we're in is at the intersection of technology and consciousness. And what we're exploring as a community, as consciousness hacking, is really the same topic that we're going to be exploring tonight in this conversation. And one way of thinking about it in the context of tonight is this this idea of spiritual innovation. This um, recognition that we have been using tools as part of the spiritual path for thousands of years. In a sense, uh, meditation is a tool. Um, And the temple that we meditate in is a tool. Even the spiritual instruction is a tool. And what we're really interested in, in consciousness hacking, is what does that look like in the modern age? How do we use science? How do we use technology? And in this case, how do we use psychedelics in order to um, support people's awakening, in order to support people's transformation, their healing, their connection to themselves and each other in the most innovative and the most helpful way possible. And, uh, and to give you a sense of kind of who's here in the space, um, to kind of who is this community, um, I have three questions which kind of characterize the people that are usually in the room at a consciousness hacking event. First question, raise your hand if you are involved in technology in some way. So, look around. Usually about 85%, something, 90%. Okay, hands down. Raise your hand if you have some kind of spiritual practice, yoga, meditation, whatever it might be. Okay, so look around, almost everybody. So, now here's a third interesting question. This is kind of the glue that unites a lot of people. Raise your hand. This is kind of a long one, so kind of pay attention. I can't find a shorter way of saying this, so let me know later if you've got a better one. Raise your hand if you are planning to, or you already have, left some kind of conventional life path to pursue something that is more in line with a deeper sense of purpose. This is consciousness hacking, ladies and gentlemen. And I love you all. Yeah, there we go. And I, I think we could say that the, the same thing is true for our two speakers who I'm going to introduce, our two, uh, I should say, conversation partners here, um, Vincent Horn and Michael Taft. So I want to start with uh, introducing uh, Mr. Michael Taft. Um, you may know him from um, the Deconstructing Yourself podcast, which is... Um, along with Vincent's podcast, two of the most interesting and relevant conversations happening online today, if you're interested in these topics. So check that out. Um, but Michael also has uh, an amazing book, The Mindful, it's called Mindful Geek. And um, it's also um, really one of the seminal books at this intersection point of tech, mindfulness, consciousness. Um, he's been a serious practitioner for over 40 years. He's told me some pretty crazy story about times he spent in caves with critters roaming around and running out of food. Um, he's, he's pretty hardcore, but he's also been teaching for well over a decade. And he actually teaches uh, right up the street um, at a place called the SF Dharma Collective every Thursday night. So if you want to sit and practice with Michael, it's about three or four blocks away. Um, I guess the last thing to say about Michael is This is a lifelong interest of his. He's been playing with brain tech and neurotech since the 80s. He was telling me a story about him and William Burroughs sitting down and playing with mind hacking technology together. So I'm really excited to have Michael part of this conversation. Mr. Michael Taft, can you come on stage? There he is, ladies and gentlemen. And I forgot to mention how handsome he is, by the way. I forgot to mention how handsome he is. And then, uh, so we also have Vincent Horn. So Vince, Vince and I actually go pretty far back. Vince was um, the first voice that I heard in the space when I decided this was what I wanted to pursue. He had a podcast called The Buddhist Geeks Podcast. How many people have actually heard of The Buddhist Geeks Podcast? So um, it's, it's, a, it's been around for quite a few years. And the very first interview that I ever did was on the Buddhist Geeks podcast. So you could say, Vince discovered me. Does that make sense? I don't know. Something like that. Um, But Vince and I have since actually um, become really good friends. Um, Part of what makes this conversation relevant is I probably had, uh, I asked him before if I could say this. I probably had one of the most memorable psychedelic experiences of my life sitting in my cabin in Santa Cruz on a couch with Vincent Horn, where we literally unified into a single mind. <laughs> we still talk about it today. We talked about it about 20 minutes, 20 minutes ago sitting on stage. Remember that time where there was like just one mind and two people? Yeah. So we've, we've been there, which means we're qualified to... We might you might notice that we might complete each other's words. That's a side effect of uh, of that experience that we had a while back. So uh, if you want to see Vince in action, he's actually going to be teaching uh, this Thursday night in place of Michael at the SF Dharma Collective, a few blocks away. Mr. Vincent Horn, please come on stage. The way this is going to happen tonight is um, it's going to be kind of me asking some questions, but I can't help but also answering them because I'm just like, as you've noticed, I like to talk. So there's going to be a lot of conversation. But the other big thing is um, you're going to be included in the conversation. So every once in a while, we're going to turn a question your direction, and you're going to turn to your neighbor, and you're going to have a few minutes to explore it, and then we're going to bring it back, hear from a few of you, And then continue the conversation. So just so you know, you don't get to be passive. So be ready to get your uh, brain juices flowing. I want to set the stage for our conversation tonight. And the tone I want to set is um, not just a kind of a forward-looking tone, sort of looking into the future, even though that's in the title. But I actually want to really point out That the future is here, that there is some sci-fi stuff that is already happening, and that there is already a revolution in the way that we know ourselves, in the way that we walk the spiritual path that's actually emerging into our modern culture. One example of this I want to give is a project that is being spearheaded by a neuroscientist named Jay Sanguinetti. We had him speaking at an event a few months ago. Who was at that event, out of curiosity? Okay, a couple people. Um, Y'all missed it. So Jay um, has been a professor in New Mexico running a lab there, working on a technology called ultrasound brain stimulation. This is a type of technology which is going to be one of these um, technologies that is going to change um, the way we can... Change the way the brain works because it can really precisely change activity in very specific parts of the brain. You can actually focus it on an area smaller than um, a grain of rice. So it's really precise. And Jay's meditation teacher is a well known teacher named Shinzen Young, who some of you may have heard of. And they've been practicing, um, some of you know him, for, for quite a while. And Shinzen is quite the geek. And he uh, came up with a theory, a certain part of the brain that he thought would be deeply impactful to accelerating the contemplative path. And so him and Jay worked together and ultimately Jay began to test this theory out and began to stimulate Shinzen's brain in this way. Shinzen has been um, teaching and practicing meditation for close to 50 years. He's done countless retreats. And I sat down in conversation with him the other day, and he said that the stimulation that he received from this ultrasound was the single most impactful intervention in his entire meditation career. Not only that, there's a handful of other experienced meditation teachers that have also experienced the stimulation technology, who have also described it as one of the most potent interventions they've also received on their entire meditation path, resulting in a distinct and lasting change in their subjective experience. This is one example of the type of technology that we're going to begin to see emerging faster and faster into the world. We're also seeing folks like Michael Pollan bringing psychedelics into the mainstream along with MAPS and Johns Hopkins University and other universities who are pushing the research forward. And we're actually seeing the realistic possibility of the legalization of psychedelics for therapeutic use, which is really exciting. And so with technology advancing as it is and psychedelics actually facing real legalization, we're, actually witnessing the democratization of awakening. We're witnessing this um, potential world where the tools that can support dramatic and deep shifts in our subjective experience are actually going to be made increasingly universally available through your cell phones, through virtual reality, through wearables. And so the conversation that we're having tonight is what are the implications of that? What are the dangers of that? What happens when um, insurance companies start um, having uh, ideas about what awakening is, and then giving discounts depending on how awakened you are? What happens when um, you know we we start uh, um, you know patenting certain uh, states of consciousness? What happens when? Um, what one person thinks is awakening, 10 years later we realize is actually incredibly harmful and destructive to society. So um, I want to actually start things off first by taking a question to you. You're all probably very familiar with this space and the ideas in the space. You've, it's not the first time you're hearing about them. So turn to your neighbor, take just a few minutes, talk about what you're most excited about and what you're most afraid of. In this brave new world of technological awakening. Go. Turn to your neighbor. Someone, ideally someone you haven't met. Um, can, we, can we hear from just a couple people? Do we have our audience mics ready to, ready to run around like crazy? Josh, do we have our runners? All right. Um, can we get one uh, right up here in the front? Oh, Glenn's got to do the soundboard and run. That's a lot for Glenn. Wait, and then who's next, just so we know, with your hand up? Can you leave your hand up and we'll take another microphone to you? For me, the thing,
1: that, the thing that's most interesting is the possibility that we awaken into actual direct collective consciousness. Mm. So what you said you and Vince shared, yeah. and that one mind and two bodies. I imagine that being the case across a wider number of people. And we were t- talking about how in Brooklyn, man, there is a collective group flow state that happens. But in some way, it's very difficult to talk about that to anybody who hasn't been there. And in some way, I, you know, I, I, for me, what I thought of is Helen Keller as an example of someone who didn't have symbolic language or some way to communicate, when it came online, it was like, oh, my God, now I, I know there's something here. Tell me more of the vocabulary, right? And so the collective flow state as being something that we're just awakening to and being able to have that actually be a domain of, of conversation. So that we awaken to that level of consciousness to be able to continue that to broaden that and have a new vocabulary for this, and and broaden it. So,
0: Vince, do you want to hit, respond to that one really quick? And then I want I have a response too.
2: Well, I wanted to go back to your story. I'm glad you told it, and I wasn't out on stage because I was <laughs> sort of like uh, of us having the, the one. I knew mind. you were
0: going to say that. By the way, nope. just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did.
2: But the you know the one mind experience is one of Many collective kind of ex- weird experiences, you know, that have, that I've experienced at this end, and it seems like it's really yet yeah, new terrain. And and one one of the things that I just wanted to highlight was that the question I came into that session with with you, because it was very much a meditative inquiry, a collaborative inquiry, was who are we? Um, so it's the you know the classical spiritual question, who am I? And I was like, well, you know, who are we? You know, what is that? Who is that we? So for me, that experience was the response to the question. You know, it was the answer um, in a certain way or a glimpse of an answer. Collective inquiry is a, an interesting
0: way to practice. And just a quick side note. This is, we were talking about earlier today, this has been a major, an, in a unique way, a major focus of your teaching.
2: Yeah, I... Um, I'm so excited about social meditation practice that I can't stop talking about it, and it's probably annoying everyone around me. Michael, we've talked about you talked about Shenzhen in a very loving way, loving way, as having that characteristic as well, where you, you know it's very excited. About yeah, you the get meditation
3: obs- practices it's, it's, that he's putting out there.
2: Right, and where's the line between excitement and obsession? That's always been my <laughs> personal
3: inquiry. <laughs> We just had uh, Daniel Ingram in town, and uh, he's going up to teach a fire casino retreat. Yeah, I wish I was going to be there. Yeah, for the two days that he was here, it was just continuous excitement about the fire casino. Yes,
0: yes. Hyper enthusiasm. So so this is a topic that I'm excited, borderline obsessed about as well. Um, And actually, um, I just uh, a few weeks ago got finished running a month-long research lab at Esalen which was the first time that they'd ever done anything like this. And I was experimenting with this technology platform that I call the GroupFlow technology platform because personally, I'm so interested in how technology can help to connect people to each other. Because for me, that is... um, deeply needed. It's something that, that I've been learning and needing in my life and realizing um, that it's not a luxury, a luxury, that actually deep and meaningful human connection is part of what we need to be um, a healthy, thriving human being. Um, and at the same time, we have an epidemic of loneliness. We're somewhere between two and three times lonelier than we were 50 years ago. And, um, and so this technology platform can take up to 24 people at a time, measure what's happening in their breath, in their heart, in their brain, and in electrodermal response, which is skin conductivity, it's like emotional arousal. And then can turn that into sound and light and music. And we can create these kinds of collective experiences of self-awareness where, for example, Michael and I could be sitting next to each other and actually gazing into each other's eyes, a practice we love doing together. We love doing that. (laughs) We could do it for hours, (laughs) just hours. (laughs) And actually hearing each other's heartbeat and actually holding each other's pulsing heart in our hands as a, as a glowing light. And this creates a deeply humanizing experience where we can sit in the circle and the entire room through a PA, PA system could hear my heartbeat and see my heartbeat as they practice a loving kindness meditation towards me. and so or, or we could do a collective breathing together by turning the group's breath into sound and light. And so there's all these ways in which you can create these kinds of deep collective Um, experiences. So I could talk about that for an hour, but just to say, look, at this is our first question. We're already uh, 20 minutes into it. Um, (laughs) But just to say, I think that this collective perspective, the interpersonal perspective on awakening and and how technology can support that in the world is really important. And uh, I believe that Facebook and folks like that are really clumsily, really awkwardly and really poorly trying to do that and we can do um, a hell of a lot better. We had one comment over here.
4: Hi, so I, I think I remember the question. Hi. Um, <laughs> Hi. The thing, the thing that I'm most excited about is creating safe and legal access to powerful tools of transformation that can empower each individual to have their own agency around their healing and, um, and can empower them to have, get in right relationship with themselves and with each other and the planet. And uh, I'm excited that I get to do that by working for MAPS. So that's pretty exciting. And uh, the thing I'm most afraid of or I get worried about is, is the why, is, is how people answer the why. Why are you doing this work? Why are you seeking these experiences? Why are you building the tech that you're building? And I think intention matters so much right now in these formative places. And so I'm, I'm very wary of that. And then access for all and how do we reach communities that are vastly different than the ones that we belong to and translate the opportunity to heal with these tools into a way that they will rise to and uh, want to receive. And so I'm really curious about how we're going to work with those questions.
0: Beautiful. That's awesome.
2: I have one response, which is um, open source. Um, Open source your findings, your tech... And give it away, and that makes it way easier to access. And it's also come can come from a place of deep generosity, um, which is a good idea from a contemplative perspective. Great, that's awesome. And there are many organizations are and do. Um, I, that's where I, you know, that's that's where I fall. I'm a digital communist, I guess. Something.
3: Yeah, and I I would like to speak to the intention part. I think it's so fascinating that with any kind of awakening state, there is this characteristic of opening and the ability to uh, uh, take in new ideas. And even if awakening states are sort of pan-human and similar all around the world, which I think they are, the sense we make of those experiences is really different all around the world and even within cultures and so there's, a, there's this aspect, you said safe and legal. I love that word safe also, right? Or especially because, you know, these tools are powerful and we need to use them well. But part of that safety is not just, um, you know, providing a, a set and setting that is really uh, healthy and productive, but also what sense you help guide the person into or if you are Uh, doing it for yourself, what sense you make of it. Having, um, making sense that is good for yourself, good for other people, good for animals, good for the world is crucial. And we see how uh, right now in our country, like how bad ideas can be really powerful, right? And the thing is, good ideas can be even more powerful, especially in these awakening contexts. So there's a kind of, I don't know, I would say almost like, meaning hygiene we have to exercise where we make good meaning out of these experiences.
0: Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on the bandwagon too and, and respond because you, you hit into one of the most important topics in this area, which is around intention, um, or another way of saying it is the place from which we create. And there's this sort of uh, unofficial motto for consciousness hacking, which is we are what we build and we build what we are. We create in our own image. And for me, the biggest bottleneck to creating what I would call truly nourishing technology, technology that um, in a skillful and holistic way, in a healthy way, supports our transformation, supports our awakening. The, for me, the biggest bottleneck is not some sort of scientific or technological breakthrough. The biggest bottleneck is actually our intentions, the intentions of the designers of the technology. And right now we have um, a lot of technology around us that's really designed primarily for profit without a huge regard for um, how it makes people feel. And the more resource, the more innovation, the more um, energy that we have driven by, fueled by the intention to actually, to actually support positive human experience, that will be the, the really big breakthrough that I think that we need to see, and we will see hopefully. That's my optimistic Mikey coming out in Silicon Valley and beyond. So I want to I wanna kind of look to the extreme a little bit. I, I opened this up with this conversation around the ultrasound stimulation technology and kind of intentionally painting a, a really bold, strong picture of what's possible there. And what I've noticed is when I talk about those kinds of technologies, understandably, people get a little bit nervous. And so I want to play with that nervousness a little bit. I want to kind of, I want to dig into it a bit. I want to really imagine that this ultrasound technology is actually just the beginning, that it's almost inevitable that we will continue to understand the brain better, understand human physiology Understand um, how subjective experience relates to the mechanisms in our body. And we will develop more precise, more advanced technologies to change our experience. And that ultrasound tech will be nothing compared to what we might see in the future. And so what does it mean when we can create the equivalent of 10,000 hours of meditation at the push of a button? Is there a such thing as an enlightenment button? Can we actually imagine? Does that even make sense to imagine a technology or a a chemical substance that is so precisely engineered, so advanced, that you could actually bring someone to the same depth of experience that might have taken 10 years meditating in a cave to achieve? And so I want to throw it to you first. Can there be an enlightenment button? How do you feel about the concept of an enlightenment button? What does that mean if there's an enlightenment button? Talk amongst yourselves. Find a new par- partner to talk to. Take a few minutes, and then we're going to come back and talk to the panelists. All right. So um, can, we, uh, can we hear from uh, maybe two people? So well, we have an excited hand over there. And then let me get our, our second one. I want to get it. All right, right here in the front. Enlightenment button. I mean, so I, at first, I was like, okay, that'd be really cool, but it's
2: stuck in time. I mean, one of my, the partners that I talked to said, oh, that's
5: ayahuasca. Easy. And I was like, okay, well, if we were to reduce it down to something that simple, you could take ayahuasca at 20, you could take it at 30, take it at 50.
2: Those are all very different experiences. And so if you have this enlightenment button pushed at age 10, is, is it predicting your future? Like, does it know your destiny? Does it, does it take into account what you've done and what you've been? And, and that's where I, re- where I really stretched my brain. I was like, is that possible? Is that, can we achieve this sort of...
3: Are you, like, on ayahuasca now? <laughs> Should I be? <laughs> If you were, it'd
0: be okay. (laughs) You'd be welcome here. I am not, but... Do you you kind of catch my drift here? Yeah. Um, So, actually, I kind of want to see what what you guys have to say about... Essentially, uh, every major contemplative path, there is a notion of going by different names some version of um, awakening or different versions of awakening where there is a distinct and persistent shift in one's experience. And people talk about it as an actual um, thing that happened to them at this day, at this time, and their life from that point on had a different, their experience had a distinctly different quality to it. And so, in a sense, you could ask the same question about... Um, the result of traditional practice of meditation. Uh, I, I would throw
2: one, yeah, v- verbal distinction that I use often t- to kind of piece apart what you're describing, Mikey, about the kind of moment of awakening and then, you know, we could think of this as the process. Uh, and I, I tend to th- see awakening as a, as a more process-oriented term and enlightenment as a term that helps to kind of point at sort of major threshold. Changes and um, you know big shifts that are permanent or seem to be um, yeah those, those are valid questions especially you know with high dose meditation experiences uh, that all of the thing the enlightenment experiences I can point back to you know it's, it's these things that happened most of them happened during long silent periods of meditation and. It feels like the rest of my life has been more of just like this ongoing away, you know, getting beat down and then somehow getting back up and go, OK, maybe I'll learn from this thing this time. <laughs> um, that's how it feels. So, yeah, it's to, and, and that's very almost schizophrenic in a way to have these profound moments of experience, and, and including, on, I'd say, in drugs, Some of the other enlightenment... One of the other enlightenment experiences seem to be related to a psychedelic journey in my case. That seems totally feasible. But day to day, it doesn't... You know, it's just like doing the laundry and responding to emails and (laughs) trying to take a shower.
3: This is why the idea of the enlightenment button is in a way not as interesting as the integration button. Mm. Right? Like, sure we can have big awakenings and then what happens out or, or I have had a lot of big awakenings, and it's like uh, what happens when you then leave that long, silent retreat, you know, uh, it's a whole big process of integrating some aspects of that awakening into the rest of your life. And then you go do another retreat and then a a repeat, right. A long process of integration. And it does feel a lot like, you know, Uh, getting kicked around it's hard yeah yeah going back and forth um but maybe we can model as schizophrenic but to to work (laughs) that was a senior a senior
2: vipassana teacher insight meditation teacher told me that was she sometimes wondered if it was schizophrenic
3: yeah i mean to me let's let's make a better meaning there and say you know it's this natural back and forth of of you know like big opening and then slow integration and big opening and slow integration so i don't know it's like who has the integration button that that's the really interesting question that's the part you want to speed up and
0: and you know to to kind of push this a little bit from a design perspective you could say well okay let's say um we we create the kind of like Technological equivalent equivalent of like five mao dmt or so, you know something like that like really like this explosive change in experience and we discover, wow well we can really like blow someone's mind out of their out of their ear hole, um, but uh, you know and they and they have this really um, dramatic kind of awakening experience but then their life after that um, is. Um, confused, they're lost, they don't know how to make sense of that experience, and we actually discover that that intervention alone is not enough. And so then you could imagine, let's, let's, let's be optimistic about this, that you actually had a whole sort of research lab devoted to this, where you had serious meditation teachers, you had uh, techie guys, you had neuroscientists, you had psychologists, you had sort of the, the best team that you could imagine working on this problem. Well, then naturally, you would go back to the table, and you'd say, well, actually, the tech is kind of broken. Because um, it's not enough to just kind of pop someone on, but you have to deal with the integration aspect as well. And so could you not then go back and say, okay, well, let's design now sort of the ultimate holistic tool that actually covers both the integration aspect and this sort of dramatic shift in experience so that we could create the um, kind of truly integrated approach to um, really rapid fire kind of awakening. Like, is that, can we keep designing it to get better and better and better? Is that possible?
3: You know, to me, it's like asking, can we have babies faster? (laughs) You know, humans are organic and, you know, beings and, and stuff just takes time to filter through the, you know, garden of neurons and, you know, have its blossoms awaken or whatever. And, you know, as soon as you start improving the technology to include the integration, all of a sudden, I bet, it will slow down. You know? So,
0: this is great. I was hoping we'd get into, like, a little little thing here. Okay. So, um,
3: Okay. Gaze into my eyes, Mikey.
0: <laughs> so, I'll paint a different picture. Imagine a thousand years ago, right? You've got um, a teacher, a really well-respected, well-loved teacher... Uh, teaching in a Buddhist tradition. And people travel from all around to sit with this teacher because this teacher is so effective at pointing out the deeper nature of our human experience. This students that go and work with this teacher are able to have really rapid progress along their contemplative path. And then you have, um, at the same time, this new teacher, just out of Buddhist University, who is just starting to teach, and they have some students trickling in. And what they discover is that they're nowhere near as effective as this seasoned teacher. And so, naturally, this new teacher is going to try to figure out, well, how, how can I improve? What can I do to be a more effective teacher? And so, they might sit and they might watch this seasoned teacher, they might learn from them, and they might say, oh, wow. That's a really good metaphor. I'm going to use that. Or they might say, oh, I need to speak a little more slowly. Or they may even say, oh, I'm, I'm realizing I need to sort of sit differently and hold myself differently. Or I need to make eye contact with the students in this way. And over time, through a learning process, what you might even call an innovation process, this teacher could become better and better and better at supporting the students along that contemplative path. And if you were to sort of study the effect of this, you might say that, over the course of five years of doing this, that teacher becomes twice as good. So is there something wrong with that? This idea that we can, through active innovation, through um, an intention to improve, actually create more skillful means to support one's awakening path. And if we do agree that that's like a useful thing to do, well, what's the limit of that? How much skillfulness is too much skillfulness? I didn't even understand that last part of the question. (laughs) But if you just feel into my mind, then you'll get it. (laughs) Wait, should I (laughs) re-explain?
3: I thought it was pretty clear. Yeah, I wonder if we're using the wrong metric for skillfulness when we're talking about how fast it is. You know, maybe there are other metrics. It's not that that doesn't matter. I mean, you know, uh, obviously... Uh, we don't want to take a lot longer than we need to, but the effectiveness of fast might not be the most important metric and and yet, you know there's probably things we can do to speed stuff up and get better at integration so okay, I can play that game yeah. we'll...
0: okay well, oh, sorry, go ahead Ms. yeah I, was, I, I I
2: sort of am with your thinking. Michael, on that integration is the harder part. Yeah, because awakening experiences are so, you know, did like dime a dozen <laughs> in a way. Um, everyone here has had an for, awakening for Vince experience. they are, yeah. I mean, you're born, you have an awakening experience. You're like,
0: ah, I'm here. <laughs> Vince has one every morning.
2: <laughs> so do you. Um, but then, yeah, what does it mean? Yeah, what does it mean? How does it change how I behave? and how I am with people, Um, how how does the reality testing... Why am I
3: still an asshole? Yeah, how
2: how are my ideals (sighs) and the reality of my life intersecting or not? (laughs) I'm all for tech augmenting and enhancing and supporting all of that process. But the other thing that seems distinct from tech is the culture or the intersubjective dimension of of this too. Because different technologies have different social programming, you know, the way that they use social or not. Like, group flow is very social.
3: We're back to the social.
2: Yeah, hyper-social. And uh, (laughs) we're back to social because, you know, where else do these things happen but in in relationships um, with each other, you know, when we're communicating? Be sitting on front of a stage, you know, pontificating as if
0: our opinions matter, you know, that much. That much. Speak for yourself, dude. <laughs> Mine matters. <laughs> so for the sake of uh, getting into stuff, I'm going I'm to come back with one more thing. So first I- I'll agree. He's threatening. I'll agree that um, the... Uh, um, that actually time, time is the provocative metric. It's the one that kind of like sparks conversation and kind of gets people on their edge. But it's not the main metric that I would use. Really?
3: Really. Okay, now I'm interested.
0: Yeah. Um, the main metric that I would use is actually this Buddhist notion of skillful means. Um, and it's been variously defined, but the, the definition I've sort of settled, settled in with is the, that intervention, which most effectively supports the student on their spiritual path. And for one student... That while
3: causing be, the least
0: harm to others. Yeah. Sure, while causing the least harm to others. Um, and so that might mean more time, right, for all that I know. What I am interested in is this idea of what does it mean... To continually increase skillfulness because that's what that teacher is trying to do as they become a better and better teacher they're trying to become more skillful and my sense is the best possible use of science and the best possible um, use of technology is to come up with increasingly skillful approaches to best nurturing, to best supporting the individual on their path in the way that they most need to be supported. And I don't mean just make it faster. What I mean is, what does it mean to be infinitely supported? What does it mean to design the most advanced, most holistic, um, uh, most aware, informed, approach to supporting a human being on their own unique transformative journey and and then multiply that times a thousand. I, I'll be
2: sort of provocative response. Yes. That's sort of half joking, but half not. Uh, I think you could say that that would sort of infinite uh, infantilize someone. You know, you turn them into like a spiritual genius slash infant <laughs> because you know, it's like, I don't need to do anything. I just sit and push my button. You know? <laughs> but but would that be skillful if you did that? I, it depends. I guess it depends on by what, you know, by what definition of skillful, you know, how are we determining what, what skillfulness is?
0: Well, it sounds like you wouldn't consider that skillful.
2: If it prevents someone from being able to grow in other ways that require difficulty and... Adversity and um, being humbled, you know, like certain things that seem to only come when people really do have to, like, just eat dirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Head down. You've
0: got you to suffer through it a little
2: bit. There's, su- suffering builds, it, it's like a, a character building, you know, superpower <laughs>
0: just like
2: turns people into saints. <laughs> I wish that were true.
0: <laughs> or it turns them into, you know, the opposite. Um, cool. Well, I could keep harping on this for quite a while, as you can tell. But let's, uh, let's keep rolling. I have a feeling we're going to circle back to this. Thank you. Um,
2: so I, just, just one shout out to uh, Ken Wilber, who the integral philosopher, um, because he has a really interesting distinction that I found helpful about state stages and structure stages. Um, and, and the simple idea is that you can train in accessing different states of consciousness and become more fluid at that and have more mastery over your, you know, what state of mind you're in. Meditation's, you know, a great tool for doing that. And that, that does progress in a kind of stage-like or, or wave-like way. Um, and that once someone gets really good at it, then it's easy to just, okay, access this state, this state, this state. They're no longer these special, amazing states. They're just like, oh yeah, that's that state. Yeah, and then the other the other kind of stages are structure stages, which are more kind of deep developmental, related to meaning making, like how we start to experience the world in more complex ways and relate to more perspectives and be able to make sense of more of what's going on. And that. That seems to be something that does take often time. I wonder if the structure stage, some of these other kinds of stages of development do just take take time. maybe they're not they can't be we don't understand them well enough. I think the state stages could be accelerated because they are pretty straightforward in a lot of ways. Um, like once you can do something with your attention, you know you can do it, and it's clear, and if a technology could help you do it faster, I would consider that very interesting and it, as part and parcel of a larger kind of approach, you know, where there's some sort of intersubjective practice, there's some relationships, there's some way of talking about how do we integrate these insights into our lives. Like that to me is really interesting.
3: Yeah, you asked the question, what's the hurry? And obviously I'm um, advocating for us contacting the richness of the experience more than trying to speed through it. You know, it's not like how fast can we eat this beautiful dinner kind of thing. It's not the right question in, in one way. But in another way, you know, the fucking world is on fire, dude. Like, we're all going to die. So there might be a real hurry to, like, change some minds. So...
0: And I'll, I'll throw one thing in. I'm kind of, I'm like, oh man, I kind of pigeon myself as the, as the fast lane guy. Um, <laughs> which, which I guess I threw myself into the fire because I, um, I'm, I'm trying to rile things up a little bit. Um, and actually the tech that I'm building is like two people sitting and like eye gazing and like holding each other's heartbeat. Um, but, the, but the thing that I, that I am really passionate about is the ideas of time that we impose on human transformation. And whether it's about being too fast, like trying this idea that we need to speed it up, or it's the idea that we have to suffer this much for this long before we can finally be free. Either way, it's a destructive limitation. Either way, it's a boundary that holds us back from freedom. And so what I'm an advocate of is not that we speed up or that we intentionally slow down, but we completely let go of any idea of what awakening is supposed to look like or how long it's supposed to take or what the process of integration is supposed to look like or what um, path that it looks like in our lives, and that we open up to the very real possibility that we can create tools with the kind of skillfulness that actually is healthy, that actually is genuinely supportive of real deep human experience that allows us to see radical shifts in human consciousness in our lifetime. Because if we don't hold that as a real possibility, then as Michael said, we're potentially kind of fucked. Because we really need it. We really need to shift as a humanity, our relationship to ourselves and each other. Otherwise, we do stand a real risk of killing each other. Yes, I was hoping you were gonna get a couple of claps there. All right. So I want to talk about um, the concept of technological dependency, which is usually one of the things that kind of comes out of these kind of conversations. So I want to first start by saying, just to get it out of the way, we're already dependent on technology. We have been dependent on technology since the advent of stone tools, since the advent of fire. Um, Dependence on technology is one of the defining qualities of what it means to be human. We create tools, and then we use them, and we actually incorporate them into the way we survive. Um, And so um, we have choices, though, about which technologies we choose to be dependent upon. And so I want to throw another little um, thought experiment at you. And, um, and it's, it's this idea of um, imagining a, a brain implant. A brain implant that um, could actually um, dramatically uh, deepen one's experience. Let's say for a moment, just to make it specific, Actually, I'm going to give you an, an example, for, a real example. There is a very real um, uh, research project going on, um, funded by the government, that is trying to deal with people coming back from conflict, suffering from PTSD. And I forget the statistic off the top of my head, but there's a really mind-boggling number of suicides from veterans. It's something like one every you know, few minutes or something like that, folks coming back from conflict. And there's a research project looking at actually creating a brain implant which would actively stimulate the part of the brain associated with negative emotion and would essentially turn off negative emotion. And this technology could actually save thousands, if not tens of thousands of people's lives. Save the lives of people who may not ever encounter meditation, may not ever encounter ayahuasca. This may be the only real effective intervention they may ever receive and could actually allow them to live a healthy and productive life, but they would be dependent on this technology for the rest of their life. Not only would they be dependent on it, but for many of us in the room that are sort of devoted to kind of a bottom-up healing path, we might look at that and say, well, they never really address the underlying causes of their suffering. We're sort of we're sort of just kind of cutting it out from the top down. And so this same kind of debate, these sort of pros and cons, you could also imagine in terms of contemplative experience. Kind of waving our hands a little and imagining a scenario where you could have a similar kind of brain implant that would, again, have the... I do have one of those. Well, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> where you could have um, a dramatically deepened experience... But if that brain implant was ever removed, that experience would immediately be gone. And so the question that I'll throw out to you is, how do you feel about this idea of a technology which could have a tremendously positive impact, not just for folks suffering from PTSD, but just imagining for a moment that this would be a genuinely positive impact on anyone's life who had that implant in their brain. But if that implant was removed, Your experience would go back to normal would you want that implant and would you want that implant to be available for other people so to your neighbor go all right we're gonna do it again two more people so we got one right here in the front and then we've got one right there one more right there in the uh middle
1: So I don't actually have an answer to this question. I was just hoping to prompt. It seemed pretty obvious in in our group that we were not in favor of this technology that would eliminate negative emotions. But I was really hoping that somebody who disagrees would love to speak up, because I think that would be really interesting. So that's my answer. Wait, so
0: we have Katie, who I think is responding to that.
3: Hi, Katie.
6: So I got really excited just now to talk because we all started out as just an absolute no. We were like, this is a horrible idea, and we hate it. And then we talked about cochlear implants, and we decided, well, those are pretty cool, and the people who have them are completely dependent on them, but we wouldn't want them to have to give that up. Everyone knows what that is. Oh, this is an implant for people who are deaf so that they can hear. Um, So we decided we're okay with those. And then we talked about deep brain stimulation for chronic depression. So this is a treatment of last resort. um, If people have had crippling, debilitating depression uh, where they have invasive neurosurgery, Uh, there are only a few surgeons in the world who can do this. And they go down through the top of the head all the way down into the brainstem and put essentially a pacemaker in the brainstem.
0: Katie's a neuroscientist, so she knows what... I'm for real. She doesn't just really play one on TV. Sorry, go ahead.
6: And this invasive neurosurgery gives these people their lives back. Like, they can get out of bed again and do things. So we decided, okay, we're, we're cool with that, too. So we went from, like, an absolute hell no, to all the way to deep brain stimulation in like five minutes. We had a, we had a good group. Um, and then from there, we went, okay, well, a cochlear implant gives you back one of the five senses. And we can all sort of, there's a biological, you know, thing we can all agree on where people who can't hear, if they're able to hear, they should have that. Chronic depression is more, there are biological correlates, but there's also a cultural, a societal thing that's happening there where these people can't participate in society, and then they have this invasive surgery, and then they can participate in society. So then we were imagining a future society where, say, most of the people are awakened. And then is dependence on a technology that allows you to access that state. How do we feel about that? And then we ran out of time. So that's that's where we left off. Does anyone else, do you guys want to add anything? Okay, so that's how we moved from a fuck no to a yeah probably in like five minutes.
0: Thank you, Katie. We got another one right over here. In the middle. Someone, I, I called on someone over there.
7: So
4: um, we were talking a lot. I know you brought it up and you kind of touched on it. And it really kind of piqued my interest about kind of touching that button and people just getting that state so quick that it almost becomes slightly abused where it's like, okay, I'm, I didn't really have to work for this. I didn't, I just am accessing this. And I think that was something that came up in our conversation. And I would love to touch on that a little bit more.
3: We're sort of talking about two different things. There's, uh, right now, one is an enlightenment button, but the other one is a not-killing-yourself implant. Right And they're really different. And so uh, the, not, the question is sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm
0: wondering about that as well.
3: <laughs> so many of the enlightened people I know are anti-natalist, so I'm not sure. But um, even some of our really good friends. Yeah. Um, so you know, if, if it's a matter of the, OK, my mom. Uh, has a pacemaker and that thing keeps her alive I, I really like that my mom's alive <laughs> and it, she has to give some stuff up to have that and it was you know painful surgery and there's all kinds of complications with it and so on and so on and that's a you know worthwhile sacrifice to stay alive so under this, the conditions of your theoretical question, Mikey, where it's, you know, this person would probably commit suicide otherwise, are is it a, a worthwhile trade? I mean, of course, they should be the one deciding, but I could see a lot of people deciding, yes, that's a worthwhile trade, even though they're definitely giving something up. So I'm on the, I'm on the yeah, we need the not killing yourself implant, but I'm not sure about the enlightenment.
0: You wouldn't necessarily die, but what about the not uh, suffering and emotional agony for your entire life? Implant, which is the life that many people uh, live.
2: Well, I mean, the early Buddhists that they set that up as a, pretty, pretty much the goal of enlightenment. That was one of the ways it was described: is you lose these certain negative uh, emotions, these uh, kleshas, they're called, and uh, that's one way of interpreting the. Old texts, you know, which is all we have really <laughs> to know what these people were talking about. But you know, it, it seemed to me, reading the translations I read, that you know, like they they just didn't want to be suffering anymore. They didn't want to have negative emotions uh, arise anymore, and they wanted to just be chill. And that was like the goal. Um, and so. I think for them, they would be like, yeah, give, you know, hook it up, you know, hook, hook up that device. I'm ready to get rid of my negative affect. But then, you know, what are the actual outcomes of people not feeling negative affect? Like, could it be that negative affect is an important part of our organism, organism and social structure, you know? <laughs> and is getting rid of that a lot of people. If it were a widespread practice, like, what kind of effect could that have socially? That would be, like, one of my first questions. You know, a bunch of enlightened people, and then, like, you know, our economy screeches to a halt, and we're all starving. You know, because they're like...
3: (laughs) It's all good.
2: (laughs) The world is ending, but I'm breathing through it.
0: (laughs) So... If that's enlightenment, <laughs> I don't want it. Which, which actually, I say that um, to, to say that um, we're throwing these words around, right? Awakening, enlightenment, and, and probably if we were to, like, take five random people and the three of us and put us in a little room and kind of ask, well, what do you mean by that? We'd probably get, like that many different answers. It's true, Um, my wife did
2: this. uh, It sounds true at a conference. And her job was to go and ask every one of the the teachers and the speakers, what is awakening? And she said firsthand, all 30 of them, different answers. So yes,
0: that's true. And I've I've seen and heard of some of the battle royales that have ensued when you get 30 of these teachers in a room and you try to actually have an in-person conversation about it, things can get pretty ugly pretty fast. so this has been a, a, a problem, I think, in, for, the, for the history of contemplative paths. The debates about the ultimate aims of contemplative paths, even different sects of Buddhism, have been hotly debated for thousands of years, right? And um, we're kind of entering into this interesting zone where science is entering into the game. And business. And business. And so you've got a couple decades now worth of really active contemplative science or meditation research, which is beginning to map the meditator's brain and looking at states as deep as as non-dual experience and sort of the deepest jhana states and really looking at the the larger and larger space um, that is encountered by long-term monks and meditators. And as science begins to build a model of what that looks like then all of a sudden there's this way in which we're saying well this is what it is and this is what it's not and here's the algorithm that'll help you attain it optimally
3: and we've patented that state
2: (laughs) or open sourced it
3: so what you know for you guys like what like
0: what does that mean when all of a sudden we start really putting a stamp and saying this is this is the scientifically validated version of
3: enlightenment? The history of these spiritual traditions is partially a history of people fighting over what is enlightenment, right? at least verbally arguing about it or Dharma combating each other about it. So it's the, the questions never been satisfactorily answered ever. And I think uh, even in this uh, scientific definition that could be happening really soon, uh, somebody's going to try to do that, that we will find that it's like what they said long ago, which is just awakening's a multifaceted jewel. There's different types. There's different faces of that jewel. And there's sort of no end to it. It's not an end state. And so you've got this multi very complex thing that we're talking about. And there's a lot of different features. So I think that the science and even the, let's say capitalist aspect is going to just run up against that right away. And that might be the, you know, added value of having lots of different enlightenment shops as each one is offering something different. I don't know. Sounds possible.
2: Yeah. With the enlightenment, um, button, you know, I want to know who is selling this to me, who's giving it to me, how am I accessing it, from whom, who's, and who's defining the outcome? Yeah. And and what's the financial model? You know, how? What's the business model? You know, how does this actually work for them to produce this technology, to enhance it, improve it, to get feedback from their users? You know, me, um, especially if they're going to be zapping my brain. Um, you know, and that stuff can be hacked if it's not properly encrypted. So, you know, once some Chinese hackers, you know, just sending me through hell states or whatever, (laughs) at the push of a button, yeah. It's like, dude, that hack earlier today really, really, really sucked. (laughs) I had to take an an equanimity tab to counteract (laughs) it. (laughs) Where was I going with this story? (laughs) Can you remind me?
0: No one knows, Vince. Actually, I know, but I'm not going to tell you. I'll let you squirm for a little bit. I, I want to know who's who's you know who's benefiting from me
2: zapping my brain and getting into this state or training in this way, um, and what's the underlying model behind it? Because there's you know the history of the web so far has been a history of failed idealism, you know, largely to me. Um, where people have brilliant ideas and a brilliant vision, and they tend to be very tightly focused on one area and not have a broad depth of understanding of other things like philosophy or contemplative awareness or those Ethics. kind of things. Ethics. Um, and then they build these you know, empires um, and Silicon Valley is very you know, much uh, the history of Silicon Valley is a history of that now um and you know it's and look at the rest of the world you know look at our current situation massive wealth inequalities right and people suffering tremendously um even in our own country you know the the homelessness i remember i was hanging with my friend croatian friend croatia's not a wealthy country compared to us at all and we were walking down santa monica boulevard or something he's walking over top of the homeless population and looks at me at a certain point, he was just, I could tell he was pissed. He's like, what are these people doing on the, you know, on the street? Why are you not taking care of them? Like, this is ridiculous. Like, he's like spitting, you know, with rage. And I'm just like, fuck. I, I, it's like something I don't even, I'm not even sensed, like that sensitive. I'm a sense I'm aware, you know, of, of people. It's not like I don't feel. But it's like I'm just at this, on the structural level, on the systems level, of like, how is our system operating? It's like people, I think individuals, we get desensitized yeah. quick. And, you know, are we desensitized to the kind of hyper-capitalism that's driving a lot of the growth in technology right now? And do we want that to be part of the new technologies that we build? Uh, or do we want to our, align our incentives better and start to become peer producers and start to create these things and give them away to each other and improve them and find new sort of models for working together. Michel B- Bowens, who's the, fund, uh, the director of the Peer-to-Peer Foundation, he's got some tantalizing ideas, you know, about, about this and um, would highly recommend checking his work out. He talks about net, netarchical capitalism. There's maybe new ways that we can make a living, you know, by all coming and self-organizing around projects and and taking responsibility for certain areas and um, you know having our own autonomy to work on interesting things and move around and and be part of collectives i'm excited about the dharma collective because it's, it's got that seed of possibility in it where we can start to organize our organizing differently and organize it in a way that's more aligned with the kind of contemplative values that meditation and traditions have Aim for in different ways.
3: Yeah. As you mentioned, the history of the web and the, and the idealism with which that started, and, and we all look upon the internet landscape, you know, the flaming dumpster fire of the internet landscape right now, and wonder how we got from there to here. And I think a lot of people have a lot of answers to that question. But we can predict that that's what will happen with any kind of, you know, brain hacking technology, whether, you know, molecular or silicon-based or, or any other basis, right? Any other substrate. Something similar is going to happen that all us, you know, idealistic weirdos who've been doing this in our basement for, you know, however long we've been doing it in our basement uh, with other people, in Vince's case, um, <laughs> uh you know, what, how's, how are we going to learn from what happened so far in the internet realm and the, the tech realm? Like, how are we going to learn to avoid having it turn into, you know, the Facebook of enlightenment? You press the enlightenment button and there's ads and, you know, <laughs> like... I I don't want to live in that future, you know, and we can predict, like that's the logic of capitalism, right? That will happen unless we actually take direct action to prevent that.
0: Thank you guys. I, um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, the biggest questions I have when I imagine both the technologies that are being built now in this direction and the ones I imagine in the future is, is who's building it and why, um, the place from which it's coming. And, um, People talk a lot about uh, AI and a lot of fear connected to AI. AI, in a way, being you know, this very literal kind of advancement in, in technology, but also almost symbolically representing sort of the, the, the pinnacle, the, the spear tip of, of human innovation in a way. And when I imagine 10, 20 years down the road, um, an AI more advanced than we um, can even conceive of right now being born out of the greed and the fear and the fundamental sense of separateness that is inherent in so much of the startup culture that we live in, and that the AI is actually born out of that place. That's an AI that I'm fucking terrified of. But at the same time, there's this thought experiment of kind of a, what I call the startup ashram, where you have this incredibly well-funded workspace where you have the best engineers that anyone could get. But hold on, how are you getting that funding? Yeah. So, and including new models of funding, you actually are seeing, um, you're you're actually seeing, interestingly, uh, we had Bo Xiao, for example, speak a few meetups ago who just announced a $100 million fund, which is coming at it from a completely different perspective where, The bottom line is not focused on profit. The bottom line is focused on social change. And if you, as a recipient of that funding, don't have a similar bottom line, which is focused on social change, then you won't receive the money in the first place. And that's the kind of funding that we need to move into, where you're only getting the money if your highest priority is actually creating a positive impact in the world. And you have that as the basis of funding. And then you have... The engineers and the entrepreneurs, the people that are actually writing the code, who are engaged actively, um, both in their own practice, but also in interpersonal practice, learning how to be human, learning how to actually relate to each other, to work through conflict, to actually learn how to connect and to love their fellow human beings. And then from that place, that lived state of consciousness, um, then you write the code to build the AI of the future. And I don't know what that would look like, but I can tell you I would much rather live in a world dominated by that AI than the AI that comes out of current Silicon Valley startup culture. So I think we're switching modes now to Q&A mode. So yes, I see an excited hand over here.
7: I was glad to hear you bring up AI because that's been in my mind this whole time. Um, AI is not only emerging you know, through money and um, intention, but it, it's being built and mirroring that, right? And so going back to this idea of would uh, people coming back from uh, service who have trauma, could we, you know, get excited about putting something in their brain and eliminating those bad feelings? And the whole idea of trauma is an interruption. And to eliminate somebody's ability to reintegrate and have them miss that process, I think is um, a reflection on our own anxiety about pain and discomfort and becoming unintegrated and working to become integrated. And so it makes me anxious to think about you know, AI being developed to reflect that kind of human that can't tolerate being disintegrated and then do the work and have the capacity and be supported to integrate. And I've, I've been mindful that we have this subject psych, psychedelics, technology, and the future of meditation. And a lot of our discussion has been technology as opposed to psychedelics and meditation, which are more about disintegrating and integrating. Um, and so I'm just aware of uh, there being this sense that if we could just figure out how not to disintegrate, how we could figure out how not to feel pain, we'll be better. And I'm not sure that's true. And that makes me. That makes me nervous.
2: Thank you. But, I, Mikey, I'm, I'm curious if you're curious, and Michael as well, you know, what, if you all think part of this might be the tension between the old uh, analog and digital duality. You know, it's like we're analog beings living in a digital world. And digital's, you know, characterized by always being on and being instantaneous. Uh, ones and zeros and analog is it's more it's organic organic it's slow it's you know it moves in a different way and at a different pace it almost seems like some of the tensions you know that have been coming up you know your question or your you know contemplation and uh the earlier one seem to relate to like the difference of those two modes what do you think
0: yeah i think definitely um there's a difference in the modes and there's, a, there's sort of a cultural difference too. You know, there's, um, with the digital age, we also have um, this expectation of, of instantaneous response, right? And this increasing expectation of on-demand, what we want, when we want it. And um, you know, my, my observation is that um, part of what is happening right now that we're seeing all around us is that expectation put to service, as you said, of our, I would call it an addiction to distraction. And I think that there's a lot of finger pointing towards Apple, towards Facebook, towards Google, um, towards many of the apps that exist out there in the world who are creating genuinely addictive technologies that are... um, largely distracting us from our own experience. But I wanna say that um, we're not just victims, that it's a two-way street. And that um, my observation is that we are um, so afraid of feeling our own pain. We're so averse to actually feeling what it feels like to be us because we're anxious, we're depressed, we're disconnected that we will happily pay a subscription fee for the most addictive app that we can find because it gives us that relief that we're desperately looking for. And so I think that's part of this digital culture that we're entering into is distraction on demand when we want it, wherever we want it. And I think that um, my hope and what what I would love to see as a technologist is technology that is just as effective, but what it does is ultimately reconnects us to ourselves and each other. Hey, Robin.
8: Hey, Good to see you. Good to see you. I want to hear the subject of death was briefly touched upon when, Michael, you you said that you enjoy your mom being alive. I do, yeah. I wonder with so much of what we're talking about here with technology and uh, the avoidance of of death, and the avoidance of we've talked about the avoidance of pain and um, so many of the the ways we inch towards feeling better about technologies that we might not in our gut feel good about at first. That that Katie mentioned, you know, well this removes suffering, well this actually stops people from dying, and when I hear this. A little context for me. A little bit ago, my my about a year ago or less, my sister died, and there's a way she came alive for me when she died in a way that was so new to me. And the more time I spend with dead bodies, the more death teaches me. And and. Uh, between the psychedelics technology and the future of meditation, two of these things seem to have a lot to do with death to me. And I'd like to know how the third can touch into death.
2: And the two that have to do with it are psychedelics Psychedelics. and meditation. The analog world.
3: What do you mean touch into death?
8: Uh, The most powerful experiences that I hear people talk about in psychedelics and, and in my own experience are those where I... Um, let go or those were, were people that I'm talking to let go even with DMT and ayahuasca people describe it as a, a, a death experience I, on psilocybin there's something I can't quite name it for, for me it feels deathy I always feel intimate with my own mortality with meditation as well there's an intimacy with, with mortality that is present I don't see our technologies bringing us into intimacy with, with death and our mortality
3: yeah. In fact, the thing that uh, Mikey was pointing to is that they are distracting you away from that thought over and over again. That might be one of the, the anxiety underneath all the distraction. Right? We don't want to think about mortality or old age or sickness, right? Yeah. Or groundlessness. Yeah. So I agree. I mean, there's a way that The whole purpose of technology is to keep you from noticing that. But it wouldn't have to be that way, right? I mean, the content is substrate independent, so we can use the technology to bring death, you know, we'll we'll give you some deathiness on demand, you know, (laughs) Robin. Like, if... It seems like that would be totally doable. I mean, you can already go on the internet and watch, you know, endless hours of people being murdered if you want. But obviously, that's not what you mean. But we can bring that kind of seriousness and uh, clarity and I don't know, sitting with the real into technology certainly, and we should be doing it a lot more. It just it doesn't you know sell ads.
7: So just
6: to um, kind of follow up on what you said, why wouldn't we want to simulate and get comfortable with death? Why are we all opposed to it? Is it going to happen to all of us? So why couldn't we use technology to alleviate, eliminate some of this anxiety and make it a positive instead of a fearful thing that's going to happen? Can you help us with that.
2: I mean, it is going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I heard your point. I am just thinking
0: about, still fearful, I still fear death, even though I've died a million times. This is for me actually one of the distinctions between um, the singularity perspective on the role that technology plays and then sort of what I see as sort of the consciousness hacking perspective on the role of technology. And for me, my observation is that from a, like a singularity perspective or humanity plus perspective, Um, what we're really trying to do is live forever. Which, when I hear that, what I hear is that we want our ego to live forever. And I actually think that there's distinct lack of freedom in that. And I think that one of the greatest roles that technology could play is actually to bring us face-to-face with our humanity, with the fact that we will die. And I think, actually, virtual reality could be an incredibly useful tool for that. As you were talking, um, one of the um, interesting uh, VR experiments came to mind where actually someone is sort of um, puts on glasses and they have to actually walk right up to an edge. And they look down and there's like a thousand foot drop. And of course it's virtual reality, but I forgot it's something like 70% of people will not take that step off the ledge. To, and this is just the simple kind of technology that's already available, but to be able to face that and then to push yourself and to actually be able to jump off of that, that's the kind of experience that's actually already beginning to be available, to begin just tastes of facing your mortality. But um, I think that there's a lot more that could be done. Standing excitedly in the back.
8: We have, we have wakes for three days, you know, in-house. The body is just there on the bed, literally, for three days. People come to visit people chat, people talk around the dead, but like there's nothing that's uncomfortable about that. Like we don't need technology to teach us that. We just need to unlearn things.
2: One thought here is, you know, where where is a technological intervention appropriate? Where is cultural, you know, change needed? Because obviously... You know, you spent time in India, Michael, and, you know, practicing and being in that culture. And it's clearly got a very different relation. They've got a very different relationship to death and dying. I mean, you know, in the river, you know, the Ganges, you're like, there's death.
3: Yeah, it's much more uh, visible there. I remember having that thought walking next to a highway one time. I witnessed uh, someone just get basically smashed by two trucks, you know, right in front of me, boom, which was really intense and and that just wasn't that uncommon of an experience like uh in in that particular spot, but even more so we for example when my uh teacher that I had been with for a long time passed away, we you know, sat with his body for Days and then took it literally out back and burned it. Very direct and, and um, intimate and ongoing connection with death going on there. And I, I agree. I mean, I, I wish we had those cultural uh, uh, practices here. That, but we've systematically kind of uh, pushed that away. And if, for example, a technological reminder of that could begin the processes uh, of, you know, waking people up to the potentially interesting and beautiful and powerful things there that could start to maybe change the culture towards that.
2: There's a virtual philosopher, philosopher of virtuality named Michael Heim, and he's also a a, a Taoist a Tai Chi practitioner, long time. And he said there's a principle in Taoism where if you push something far enough, it flips into its reverse or into its opposite. Marshall McLuhan, uh, the media theorist, also included that observation as part of his tetrad of media effects, you know, the things that new technological mediums do. They enhance certain things. They make other things obsolete. They retrieve things that were obsolete from the past. And then they also can flip or reverse into an extreme uh, or to a new state when they're pushed to the extreme. I think the VR thing is interesting where, you know, you say you could be in a virtual morgue, you know, witnessing a dead body, and it could be an actual visual image of a real dead body. And, you know, that's an early Buddhist practice to sit in the uh, charnel grounds and to contemplate dead bodies as your object of focus um, and to develop, you know, a deep penetrating concentration uh, on the contemplation of real live, real live death. (laughs) And, you know, I could see in VR, and Michael talked about this, you you could push VR to the extreme where you are able to have these simulated experiences that aren't quite real. And that can actually push you into wanting to have the real experience. Um, He talked about that in terms of the Japanese tea uh, ceremony, you know, and that you could imagine this VR tea ceremony with all the intricate ritual and the beautiful you know, sensory experience of it. And that could be perhaps something that would inspire people to be in relationship to nature in a different way because it's itself this microcosm of of natural relationships. And I thought that was like a really interesting and beautiful idea. I wonder, you know, what the reality is going to be when people start to be able to simulate all these
0: different scenarios. One more question right here in the aisle, the glasses.
9: Um, you with the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess one of my questions is, um, I mean, you look at these three topics and I feel like the people that are talking about these topics in general in our culture, it's a very demographically homogenous group, and I think the comment that came from the back of the room is really valuable and such an amazing uh, display of, like, kind of how we're missing so much perspective that happens from around the world. And I guess I'm wondering, how do we expand the, I don't know, the representation of different viewpoints and broaden these topics and the people that are talking about them, particularly around psychedelics, which I feel like is really dominated by white men, and technology, which is dominated by like, American perspectives. So, yeah, how do we use other people's viewpoints and widen these topics?
0: I, I, uh, I, have a, I have a hunch that you might have a good answer to that question. Really? You don't,
9: do you have any thoughts? It seems like something you're passionate about. Um, I'm passionate about it, but I'm, I think that mostly comes into affecting, into making me realize that my own biases and my own background prevents me from really being able to see the right answers. Well, not mine. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, I'd
2: I, I just say open source again, because... This is an actual way to make something more accessible to anyone who can gain access to whatever the digital schematics are, the digital instructions. And they can take that and they can modify it, make it their own, um, find out how to express it in their own cultures of meaning. That's one practical way, you know, again. Uh,
3: And part of it is just um, having the intention. Uh, Something that's really exciting about right now is that we have access to the information and experience of these awakening technologies in a, it just a much, much greater amount than it was in the past, right, ever before. We, we know about more ways to work. We have access to real teachers. We have so much uh, information about all this, right? So interesting to me there is that it can be made personalized, right? You can personalize it for you or your community. You can make, customize it. Like, what are we working with? And you can build in those intentions. Like, well, we do want to have women's perspectives. I mean, my God, it's all male perspective with this stuff, right? So how about some women's perspectives? How about some perspectives from other cultures? And you actively seek that out in the menu, you know, you're creating, so, I think, um, together with the open source, which is part of making it all available, we also um, reinforce to each other that there are a lot of viewpoints out there that aren't getting that represented currently, and that probably would be really, really healthy to uh, definitely be really healthy to include in the mix and so we that's part of the you know democratization of awakening part or the the fact that we kind of have a little bit more control over this than we ever have. And that's a great place to exercise it. So thanks for bringing that up.
0: Yeah, I just want to say that this is a real concern and, and it's something that, I'm, that I don't have an answer to. And I can see the bubble that I'm living in and I, and I like don't know how to get out of it. So if anyone has any ideas, give me some answers. Oh, you'll we'll get plenty of those. Okay, yes. this is our last... Uh, Last one.
4: Sorry, I'm actually really shocked that nobody has better answers to this. And it shows just how privileged of a conversation that we're having here in this room, because both open source and intention are incredibly privileged answers to that question. And um, there's a a really great book I recommend called Emergent Strategies um, by Renee Marie Brown, who works in Detroit. The number one thing is we have to be extremely proactive about reaching out to communities. It's not just sitting back and and like thinking, oh, well, we mean well, we mean well, we mean well. No, it's getting out there and meeting people from vastly different backgrounds and cultures and going into those cultures and sitting and listening and asking what they need and and then understanding that, that we won't actually know what they need and being, and then inviting them into positions of power into the organizations that we're running so that they can influence the decision-making that, around that. Even if they don't have the skill sets that you might think one re- is required to run your next blockchain startup that's gonna end poverty, you should invite somebody from the community you're trying to impact into a position of power into that organization. So that's one strategy. I think that all of us need to get out of our bubbles and go into our communities. There's a huge diversity here in San Francisco in the Bay Area of different perspectives. And so anyways, I have a background of working in ending the drug war and that's what brought me to working for the legalization of psychedelics. And I think that the number one thing I get so afraid of is that we forget the context of the drug war. So psychedelics isn't just this like, oh my God, we're so blessed and we're just going to like drink ayahuasca in circles. There are people in jail in California for selling cannabis currently while people are making millions of dollars. So I would really encourage people to be highly proactive in seeking a vast diversity of perspectives and getting to know people and their needs and serving them and their needs, not thinking that we have the answer.
1: Thank you.
0: And I think we've got time for one more
5: question. Let's do right here in the front. So we've talked about integration and how powerful integration is. And, you know, like you've had this enlightened experience and everything. So part of that integration process is all this amazing insight you might have. How do you decide to share it? How do you decide to bring the gifts that you've, all this amazing understandings that you have? And then seeing how to share it With every connection that you have and making sure that it's not just oh, like, yeah, like I have this great idea, everything, but it's about consent. It's about like, hey, I really think this is really cool. How do I share it with you in a way that is building bridges in a way that, okay, two people. It's not about like, oh, my God, yeah, you should go drink ayahuasca. It's about like, let me understand your pain. Let me hear you. And then maybe we can talk about how can we get to a better place together. That is the integration. That is what the path to enlightenment is or whatever it is, is about you've had this amazing experience. How do you share it with everybody? How do you share it as you go deeper and deeper and spread the ink into the water and not just expect that. Oh yeah, like I dropped you know, this ink into the water. It should go everywhere quickly. It is about how does that interaction need to happen and spread.
0: Thank you. I'm going to kind of pass it over to uh, Michael and Vincent for any final comments that they want to make, and then um, Kim's going to come up and do a quick little thing with us.
2: Yeah, I, wa- I wanted to say one thing in, in response to the, uh, sorry, I couldn't see how old you are, but you seem like a young woman to me, uh, and I'm a young, I'm a youngish man, so. So thank, thank you for your comment. I, I wanted to say one thing, which is, you know, I, I, I grew up in the rural South um, with an uh, Arabic uh, family. Uh, so we were kind of part white, part... We, we sort of jokingly now call ourselves like mayo with olive oil, you know, as my, my cousins and I. And we're in this sort of multi-mixed family upbringing in the, in the Southern Baptist South. It's a very weird mix of realities. And out of that... I really sort of saw the the usefulness of being able to understand very different like realities, not even different worldviews. Like different re- people are living in different realities that come from very different religious and cultural backgrounds, um, and and those realities don't always you know they don't always meet, and, and they are difficult to to sit in the tension of two different ways of knowing and ways of experiencing. Um, and, and I love that you suggested that. And, and I'd say, you know, there's almost like a tension or conflict in these two um, like two, two modes. One is you know, wanting to find people who are doing things like I'm doing and finding my, my niche, my people, my you know, tribe, whatever, my like-minded. You know, everyone uses those terms that, you know, they're looking for like-minded people. It can be useful for learning certain things and deepening in certain ways where you kind of just immerse yourself in that reality. But then it cuts you off, right? It also cuts one off from uh, different perspectives because I'm not focused on that. I'm focused on this. Um, and, and in a way, you know, what, what you're describing, I feel like is the move, you know, if this is the move of like transcending or innovating or pushing the edges, this is the move of compassion. It's like including, going back and making sure we're not leaving anyone else out of this vision. If this vision is really good, then it should be totally good for, for all that want to participate in it. And so I think what you're saying is really important. I recently moved uh, down from the mountain, literally and figuratively, um, from progressive community that I was in to, you know, much more, you know, a community that is racial tensions and issues are very, you know, daily come up. And it's been great, you know, to do that, um, to come down off the mountain and be humbled by seeing how different other people's reality are and to listen to. To, to start to ask questions, so thanks for bringing that up. It's really important.
3: I'm happy to answer a question. I don't feel like I have a, a major like summary statement. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Vincent. And thank you to um, to all of you. Um, this has been this has been fun, and um, I. Um, I hope it was of benefit to you kind of uh, intentionally shaking things up a little bit, trying to bring in some of the more provocative ideas that are in this space, um, because there is in many ways um, an exciting and in many ways a scary set of possibilities that we're looking at. And my hope is that being able to have this conversation and really feel the, the, the pressure of it, the the stress of it, the, the tension of it, that it actually um, puts you in a better position to, to look forward and think about the future that you want, that you want to create and that you want to live in. I don't think that there's any best thing or number one thing that humanity needs. It's not technology. It's not more meditation. It's, it's um, people like you who are coming alive and doing the greatest good that you can in the world. And whether that's making tech or whether that's teaching meditation or whether that's being an artist or whether that's legalizing psychedelics. Um, And so I hope that this conversation was in service to you doing the greatest good that you can. So thank you, everybody, for coming tonight.
2: After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, You're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting
7: BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.